Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. The advent of any new Slipknot album brings with it a sense of horror and foreboding. This is a band, after all, who used to huff a jar of dead crow to get psyched up for live shows. But the announcement of their new album, The End So Far, caused a new kind of consternation among Slipknot's maggot fanbase. This, they thought, could be the band's final statement. Though they've been together for nearly 30 years, Slipknot have endured more than their fair share of trials. Founding bassist Paul Gray passed away in 2010. Founding drummer Joey Jordison died last year. It would be hard to hold it against the members of Slipknot if they chose to step away from a project that's seen such turmoil and, lyrically, musically, and aesthetically, often faced its own hell head on. But it's precisely because of that confrontational attitude, something approaching catharsis, that their legion of fans can't imagine the end of Slipknot. In reality, the end so far is a reference to Slipknot's label situation. Two decades ago, they signed to Roadrunner Records on a seven album deal, and this is their seventh studio record. It's an album that explodes from the starting blocks with an intensity unparalleled by their peers. Frontman Corey Taylor, who purged his personal demons on 2019's We Are Not Your Kind, takes a more zoomed out approach to the writing this time casting his eye across society and reporting back on the horrors he's witnessed. Herd mentality, tribalism, and social media-led ignorance make their way into an album that once again marries Slipknot's dual obsessions, togetherness and unrelentingly heavy riffs. Earlier this week, The Fader's David Renshaw spoke to Corey Taylor about remaining energized after decades in the game, looking into the distance with his lyrics, and what happened when their merch accidentally became a collector's item thanks to The Sopranos. So I wanted to start by congratulating you on the new album, The End So Far. It's a fantastic album, and I think people are going to be really delighted with what they get when it comes out this week. I was curious, though, you know, this is the seventh Slipknot album. You've been a band for many years now. What motivates Slipknot to get back in the studio and make new music in 2022? That's a good question. <laughs> the good thing is, is that we allow ourselves time to breathe. We allow ourselves time to process everything that we've done previously, whether it's the year and a half of touring that kind of goes on, like all the things that we kind of put into a, a proper cycle we always allow ourselves to kind of get away from each other and get away from the pandemonium of it all. I think that allows us to appreciate what we're still able to do. So I think the cool thing is that when it comes to making new music, there's a genuine sense of excitement that comes with it because there's still so many musical realms that we haven't explored, that we 
that we would like to explore someday. And, uh, you know, as long as we keep pushing the boundaries, it keeps it exciting for us and it keeps us looking for what the next, you know, road is or what the next sound is. And because there's so many people in the band, you know, there's never a loss for ideas and inspiration. You say you allow yourself time to process the previous album. The previous album to this was We Are Not Your Kind, which came out in 2019. After the touring and the kind of everything had died down from that album, how do you how do you reflect on that record? And how did it then inform going into the new one? Well, it's funny because honestly, in retrospect, it was the pandemic that kind of shut everything down on us. I mean, we were only about eight months into our cycle, I believe, maybe even less by the time the pandemic hit. I think in a way it felt like, you know, there were still a handful of places that we hadn't hit. So by the time it came time to kind of ramp this up again, we ran out on the road before we were even done recording the album and getting it it done, I think. So there was already a sense of excitement about you know being able to do this again being able to you know kind of get out in front of a a massive audience and and share new music with them so i I guess it was just a little bit of pent-up cabin fever combined with the usual excitement for like the newer material is that one of the first times you've kind of been on the road whilst making a new album no well i mean it was kind of a reverse iowa in a way. The crazy thing about the Iowa album is that that album was done and ready to go. It was almost like we fled. We just we went went right from the studio onto the road and we were on the road for about maybe 6 months before the album even came out, which was crazy, man. Like I mean, we didn't even wait to to kind of do anything. We were still okaying mixes in Germany. I remember we were sitting there were listening to a a mix for the heretic anthem. And this was back when it was still called the heretic song. And we were like, we were like, ah, this is just didn't work. We don't have proper equipment to listen to the, to the mix on. And I remember, I can't remember. It might've been Craig even who was just like, well, it's not like we're going to be able to bring any of that crap out with us. This is what we got. We were like, eh, that's true. So, I mean, this time around, we weren't even done recording it, you know? So it was, so it was strange to, to be rushing back out at the same time, I think it might have just the anticipation of of getting in front of a huge audience again because it had been so long that maybe it just we ran out in in lieu of just sitting and waiting and, and building the anticipation. And speaking of "We Are Not Your Kind," you've described that in the past as one of the darkest chapters in Slipknot history, kind of around the making of it. What was the vibe going into making the new album? Both. For you personally and collectively as a band it wasn't as heavy let's put it that way i mean obviously because of what i was able to let go of personally on we are not your kind that enabled me to move smoothly into the not only the the recording but the writing for this album and really kind of get into a great healthy mindset, something that was positively aggressive as opposed to a purging, really, which certainly, you know, lent itself to some of the topics that I was kind of dealing with, which were very much outside of my sphere. For me, lyrically, I was kind of going back to 
an old school way of writing, which was less about, you know, looking inside and more about looking outward and, and trying to relate to other people instead of trying to get people to relate to what I was talking about. So for me, it was, it was great. It was more of a spectator perspective than it was somebody trying to figure out how to, to write his own narrative. And that lent itself to the kind of positive approach, getting into you know reco- recording the album, recording the vocals, working with Joe, and really kind of putting that all together to create a really great atmosphere in the studio. You talk about being a spectator and kind of looking outwards for your lyrical inspirations. What were some of the subjects that, when you looked across the, the world, grabbed your attention? And what did you find yourself drawn towards writing about on, the, on this album? I mean, it was interesting. You know, once you kind of cast your direction outwards, you know, you start to really pick up on things that you've actually been thinking about in life. One of the themes that kind of comes to mind is the song Heirloom, which really has to do with the legacy of abuse, whether that's from a relationship or from growing up uh, parental or romantic and how we process it and how we carry on with it, you know? So that song really deals with where do you break the chain? How do you break the chain? Are you even strong enough to do that sometimes? Or do you just inadvertently pass on the difficulties that you find yourself in, in a day-to-day basis when you're dealing with the pain and the emotional scars, the physical scars, you know, do you find ways to break that chain or do you pass it on to the next person? So that's something that I, I, you know, I've, I've thought about for a long time and I know how I've processed it, but I've always been fascinated by how other people process that as well. And then there's the obvious, you know, the usual suspects, you know, the, you know, looking at the world now as a global network and how we're feeding one psychosis and cutting off another, whether it's through social media or through this tribalism that is really trying to suffocate normalcy in the world today. And, uh, you know, stuff like that has crept in, you know, you're looking at how fans kind of look at us and the expectations that people try to put on us and, you know, how a lot, a lot of people tend to cave into toxic fandom. We have just, you know, stiff armed them for the most part and kept that at bay because there's more important things for us than, than worrying about what the mob is trying to, to kind of direct us to do. So there's been this, a lot of different themes and issues that have crept into what I've been trying to talk about and really kind of trying to expand the horizon as much as we've been able to expand the boundaries of our music. It's interesting what you say about the relationship you have with your fans and that kind of, that's something that I think a lot of musicians of this generation are much more aware of how their audience think and what they want from them, both personally and musically. So you say that's something you, as a band, you feel the need to push back against and kind of not be too affected by what the Slipknot fans want from a new Slipknot album? I don't know if it's so much a need 
as it's just something that we've always done. When we look around us, we see so many brands, really, because it's not just a music thing. If you look at movies, you look at art in general, it really feels like the fans have taken this position where they get to dictate where it goes instead of looking to the creators to kind of dictate where it goes. And luckily, we've been able to slip a lot of that toxicity. We've never really had that because we've never encouraged it. We've always, from day one, kind of fostered the idea that you're with us. We're not with you. You're with us. So you either are with us or you're just going to get left by the wayside. But we are going where we want to go. And that's just the way it is. So I think because we led with that right from the get-go, we never slipped into that groove of the fans trying to direct us into places that we didn't want to go or where we felt like we needed to go. We just kind of did things on our own. But looking at the global landscape, more and more new fans seem like they're trying to be proprietary when it comes to what we're trying to do. And we go, nope, you need to get with the program because this isn't your gig. This is our gig. And we're here to entertain you. We're not here to dance for the love of a mob, basically. You mentioned some anxieties you have around social media and the way people behave online. And I think that kind of is perhaps most prominent in the song, The Chapel Town Rag. Everything is gone alive. And if this evil is a guess, this is no fucking trick. Either follow or a brand new job. Get infected by a vertical affair. Take a meter, check your watch. Are they ever gonna stop? Running out of daylight, night times better. But we know what I am, all the truth, motherfucker. Scandalous, know it all, feedback chamber. Nobody wants the proof, they want a number. which also has this kind of imagery and some lyrical context within the story of the Yorkshire Ripper. I wondered if you could explain a little bit about how you went about balancing those two aspects in the song and, and kind of what it was you wanted to say about social media in particular with, with that song. The thing that has really fascinated me about social media is just how twisted it has made media in general. Whereas like how we get our news and just how we have to really kind of take it with a grain of salt sometimes, or we can't just take it at face value. It's incredulous to me, you know? So, I mean, the Yorkshire Ripper thing really came from the fact that I am just as guilty as everybody else of being fascinated by these documentaries about you know, serial killers or true crime and whatever, it just permeates everything we do. And yet the media feeds that so much, you know, and, and, and as much as we try to shy away from it, we're still so intrigued and so fascinated by it. And the fact that the media kind of, you know, kind of, it's almost like throwing meat to the lions in a weird way. We chase every crumb and we try to, to lap up as much of the tabooism of it all. To me, that, that's what really drove why I wanted to write 
the Chapel Town Rag the way I did is because we become so fascinated with the darker side of life that we don't realize that that fascination is actually becoming a reflection of what our reality is becoming. We don't understand that by chasing down that darker side, we're actually allowing that darkness to become what our reality is. Instead of it just being this entertainment that we visit, it now becomes this thing that we're all living and having to deal with. To me, I think that's the real danger of how twisted our reality is getting to the point where we won't even know where the darkness starts and where it be- and, and where it ends. Do you see that kind of interest in violent crime and, like you say, the true crime phenomenon that I think everyone is a little bit taken in by on some level? But it's not a reflection of society. It's more of a driving force, not a reflection. I think so. Yeah. I mean, we've always been fascinated by that darker side of things. You know, I mean, that goes all the way back to the Coliseum and and watching the gladiators fight each other. And maybe it's just part of our human nature. But because we find ourselves in this weird feedback loop now where it's not enough to go and visit it. Now we have to just stay in it and invest ourselves in that. And, And we're not happy unless we're completely wound up, completely dramatic, completely torn and stressed. I mean, it's just the normalcy of today is nowhere near what it was even 20 years ago, which is crazy. You know, I don't know if it's a problem yet. I definitely know that there are real clues as to whether or not people can become addicted to stress and to that sort of chase for needless drama and darkness because it doesn't become attractive now now it's just something you need like it's like people romanticize it and then they feel like they can't exist in their life without that that sort of desperate need to to be involved in something and and i think that's one of the things that social media is also foistering that's one of the reasons why we're so fascinated with the the true crime side of it because someday maybe it's going to be us Someday, maybe it'll be our story out there. So maybe I should stay as stressed out and dramatic and and on the edge as possible because maybe they'll do a podcast about me someday. And that's so fucking toxic, man. I can't I can't imagine people wanting to live inside that world. It's insane. It feels to me a little bit like a desire for danger and and a kind of an extreme end of society which i guess you could argue has benefited slipknot in the past like the the kind of very comfortable middle classes perhaps are drawn to the imagery the sense of danger around the band like you know even just in the way you guys present yourself the, the heaviness of the music is that something you think kind of works across culture this kind of uh violent imagery and the kind of extreme nature of things i don't know about that i mean you know, there's always going to be something salacious about vibrant imagery and music that makes you feel a certain way. But at the same time, I mean, this is also a culture where we tell people look to look out for each other in the pit. We, this is also a culture where we encourage unity as far as breaking down barriers inside the genre and the community itself, whether it's foisted 
racism or skepticism of anyone who might be homosexual or from a different country. We try to level the playing field and get everyone to come together to express themselves. And yes, some of the imagery is is definitely violent, but show me something where it's not, you know, even some of the quote unquote nicer acts out there use violent imagery as a way to express art. And that's all we've ever done. We've never tried to be violent just for violence sake. This has always been about expression. This has always been about creating art and it's something that we've always backed. You know, it's one of the reasons why the music and the lyrics have always encouraged people to express themselves and get to a place where they don't need that darkness anymore. You know, we always have it. It's always there. But at the same time, by realizing that you're not the only one and you're not alone, you can let some of that go and you can come to appreciate it. And that's what we've done with the music and the art, trying to create a community and and bring people together. Obviously, as a frontman and as an individual, you're very outspoken with your political views and beliefs. So this new album is obviously the first album released post-Trump. I know that his time in office didn't make it didn't fill us through. So we are not your kind. It was very that was a very personal album. But as you said, you're looking out into the world. You look you're viewing a on the surface different political landscape in in your country and globally. I wondered if there were any social or political themes in the end so far? Ah, Not really. It's more of a social album. You know, I mean, the thing I learned from my experience writing about politics really came from when I wrote America 51. That was really when I realized that there were so many people off their shit, really. I mean, there's really no other way for me to describe it. That kind of showed me that until the conversation can get back on stronger footing. There's no reason for me to try and convince people who will not be convinced that there's something wrong with their candidate. There's just no way to get those people to see and understand because they feel like they have been vilified for reasons that really can't even be described either. You know, it's, it's a very strange world that they live in. I, I realized that trying to convince them that they're wrong is like trying to punch my way through a brick wall. It's just not going to happen. Like, you know, I'm not the Hulk. I'm going to break everything. I'm going to walk away with just two mushy, meaty pulps, you know, hanging from the end of my wrists. There's no way I'm going to be able to do it. So for me, I 
have tried to take a different approach. I obviously have my views and I try to connect people on how there are certain views that both sides of the coin, both sides of the political landscape, they have in common. And I try to connect those people and try to get them to to talk on that level. Because when you break it down like that, when you get it away from that mob mentality, you can get people to talk one-on-one. They see that there's no need for the outrage and there's no need for the fear. And that's how Trump rules. That's how he controls is by feeding into the fear and feeding into the ignorance. And when you're in a group, ignorance is easier to push. But when you're one-on-one or even two-on-two or just in smaller groups, you can work out through conversation, you know, what the reality is. And that's what I've been trying to do. It's, you know, everybody knows how I feel and there's no need for me to run around and trumpet it. What I can do is I can try to, you know, talk people off of that proverbial ledge and get them looking at things from a different perspective, if I can. And honestly, in this day and age, there are enough people trying to tear us apart. I don't need to be one of those people. I would rather try to be one of those people trying to mend fences instead of, you know, trying to, you know, set the whole damn place on fire. And obviously two of the most tribal followings across the uh, kind of both entertainment and politics is, yeah, like I said, party politics and music. Do you feel that your kind of history and knowledge of the metal community maybe gave you some grounding in how the uh, political wars of the last few years were going to play out? I mean, it's, it's interesting because I didn't even realize how fractious the landscape was until I made a very, very innocent tweet. This is back when I was still on social media. This is probably about six, seven years ago. I made a very innocent tweet about, I want to say it was women's rights or something like that. And all of a sudden, all of these people came out of the woodwork to label me as an SJW, which I had never even heard of before. I was like, what what are you talking about? What the hell is an SJW? And that's when I really started doing research into just how broken down the lines were, how far apart everybody was on so many different issues. Issues that to me, I thought were common sense. Things like freedom of speech, equality, women's rights, productive rights, same-sex marriage. I mean, things that you would think in a normal conversation in a normal society think that people would be on the same side with and yet that was not what I was finding I was like holy shit what really so I've really in the last couple years I've seen it divide not only the world but I've seen it divide the middle community because people have definitely started to take sides and that's become their identity now some of those groups it's bitten them in the ass And I'm wondering if that's going to be something that they try to fix maybe down the road. There's a difference between making that your identity and 
talking about the politics that you believe in. You know, there's a very specific difference in that. And I think because I've never just tried to explode across everything and come off as this is who we are, this is what, or this is who I am, this is what I'm, you know, this is what, this, you know, anything else is verboten. I, I think that's why people still listen to the things that I have to say is because I'm outspoken, I'm loud, but. I'm not trying to get people to follow me. I'm just letting people know where I'm at. Trying to change my mind is probably not a good idea. You know? So for me, it's, it's kind of fascinating to see just how different things are now and how identity has become so important to music uh, and to the, to the artists who make music. It used to be a fashion thing, and now it's so much different. It's, it's so much more of a sociopolitical thing. I don't know, man. I don't know if that's the way, because it's harder to get people on the same page. It's, it's so much easier to divide people, and yet division can be so temporary. You know, When you have that mindset, it's, it's hard to get anybody to recover from that. The album that you've compared the end so far, too, from your back catalogue is Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses. I was wondering if you could tell me what similarities you see between the two albums. The experimentation, definitely. The embracing of melody again and not just making things melodic for melodic sake, but really playing to the nature of the songs, you know, and trying to find those beautiful passages and really just trying to make beautiful music, man. You know, I mean, that's something that we've always wanted to do. You know, heavy music isn't just heavy, it's beautiful and it can be powerful. And for us, there's been no reason for us to limit ourselves to just one side of this. So for us, it was just about exploring different musical landscapes again, really trying to push the boundaries and just keep writing music that feels fresh, you know? And we really kind of started that with volume three, you know? I mean, we set the tone for people with Iowa by saying, you just never know what you're going to get with us because everybody expected us to kind of go in and write a bunch of weight and bleeds and then, you know, kind of get on with it. But we threw them for the loop for with writing one of the heaviest albums of all time. And then we did the same thing with volume three because they were expecting us to go another direction. And we went experimental. We went with, okay, check this out. You know, yes, we can do heavy, but we also have some of the best songwriters, best players, you know, and, and one of the best singers in the world. Let's lean into that. Let's, let's go with that. And that's where we're at with this one as well. You know, it's really just about exploring our abilities while also embracing, I mean, for lack of a better term, our, our influences, man. What would you identify as the kind of key influences while making this album? I mean, there's one, there's one song, especially that to me really represents our love for bands like Acid Bath. You know, um, it's the song Acidic actually is a, a, a great homage to them because to me, I think they're still one of the most underrated bands that ever was. And the fact that not, en not enough people 
know who they are is is criminal. Dax Riggs is one of the greatest singers that ever was in this genre. And it it behooves me not to be able to come out and go, he's a huge influence. I want you all to go and find him. And this is one of the songs that inspired me, you know? So to me, it's it's stuff like Acid Bath. It's obviously there's stuff like Death, Obituary, but there's also songs on here that have echoes of, you know, the darker side of the cure or Echo and the Bunnymen, you know? I mean, we're really kind of weaving our way through all of these beautiful shades of music that we grew up with and in true Slipknot fashion, not giving a shit what anybody thinks about, you know, the decisions that we're trying to make. The End So Far is the first Slipknot album since the untimely death of Joey Jordison in 2021. I was wondering, was his passing on your mind during the making of the album, whether it's through the writing or, or in the studio when you're together? I mean, it definitely crept in because it happened while we were working on you know, some of this music. We dedicated the album to him. It was definitely a shock. It was one of those things where we hoped it wouldn't happen. But when it did, it was almost like a, a sad resolve that, it, you know, it just, you know, for somebody that creative and that explosive, we just wish we hadn't lost him this soon. You know, I know from my perspective, we were, you know, hoping to kind of mend fences with him. And it's just one of those things that it just tells you that whatever you need to do, do it now, because you just never know when you're going to lose somebody. Losing not only Joey, but also Paul Gray. Does this kind of um, experience that you as a band have been through make you appreciate your time together more as a result? It definitely woke us up a little bit. You know, I mean, it definitely made us realize that we are on the other side of youth. Let's put it that way. And there's going to come a time when we're going to start losing each other again. And we should definitely take advantage of the time that we have right now with each other. So I, you know, I know just from my own perspective, I have definitely tried to, you know, let these guys know how I feel about them, how I feel about the music that we've made together and just how much I appreciate the fact that not only did I get to write some of the greatest music in the world with them, but I also got to tour the world with them. And, uh, you know, no matter how different you are, because we're all such different people, it, it makes you appreciate the fact that after all these years, you're still doing it together and still doing it at this pace. I mean, it's, you have to embrace each other after that and just go, you know, we did something special. 
the other thing that I wanted to talk about today, actually, away away from the kind of uh, the, the darker and, and sad parts of the story, is the thing that's always intrigued me about Slipknot, and I'm sure for a lot of people, it's the kind of the first thing you see and interact with is the image, the masks, the boiler suits. It's kind of it's very uh, creative. But I think it's one of the most creative parts of the band. I'm always as intrigued to see what you guys look like when you come back as to hear the new music. I was curious. At what stage does that process begin for you guys? Do you kind of start designing the masks and thinking about the way you're going to present yourself at the same time as you're writing the songs? Does it come afterwards? What's kind of like the thinking behind the way you present yourself? We end up kind of piecing it together as we go, to be honest. You know, sometimes Clown has a cool idea for the visuals because he's so driven by art that he just sees these great textures and things that we can try and mess with. But then at the same time, some of us just kind of gravitate towards the stuff that we want to wear, you know, and we can usually find that common ground that kind of visually ties us all together. We we've all been very fortunate in the fact that even when we're looking at like different ways to express ourselves through the fashion, even we we've found ways to kind of get on the same page, and uh, you know, luckily we all are very into each other's vision. You know, even when even when we're all at our craziest or rawest, we still get excited. We still get stoked when the things kind of come together, and uh, we just kind of go with it. And I was. Wondering if you could kind of talk me through the inspiration for the new mask that you're wearing on stage right now. I'm kind of looking at it right now and it's got these eyes removed. The teeth are very prominent. It kind of looks like an almost like a haunted baseball (laughs) in my mind. (laughs) That's beautiful. I love that. A haunted baseball. (laughs) It was kind of a, a, a combination. I was trying to go f- for something that was almost like an homage to all of the masks that I've had beforehand, which is why there are little pieces of you know some of the masks that I've had in the past, all kind of in this thing. But at the same time, I've really just wanted to do something that was also reminiscent of the doctor from Nightbreed, uh, uh, Dr. Descartes, the, the serial killer, because it's such a striking visual. Um, I wanted to take kind of all of those ideas and, and kind of throw it together. I worked with a great new kid, Connor DeLess, who helped me kind of put this together. And we were able to kind of, um, you know, put something together really special. I remember the first time I put it on and and walked out, it was like I got just this barrage of iPhones just flashing in my face. Everybody was freaking out. It's like, oh, my God. You know, so it was that was a special moment. I knew I was onto something. I was thinking about some of the less obvious ways that Slipknot have made their way into popular culture. And one thing that stood out to me was in 2020 when you guys actually ended up bringing back the Windbreaker jacket merch that you brought out years before because it had this revival 
through The Sopranos, which people were watching a lot in at that time, I guess, around kind of pandemic. AJ Soprano is obviously a, a metal kid and he wears this windbreaker jacket and people were kind of um, taken by it, obviously. And it had this revival, was fetching kind of $400 online. Were you taken aback by this? Is this kind of something that surprised you? It definitely wasn't something we were planning for. We got to meet him backstage at a show in New York uh, right around the time that that was actually happening. So it was really, really cool. And he was a fan in real life as well. So they they incorporated that into the show. <laughs> it's so weird how things like that kind of come around. And, you know, they kind of hit you for a loop about what's going to be the thing you know, everybody tried to pride themselves on on being able to foresee what the future is going to hold. And there's just sometimes where you're just like, I didn't see that coming. I mean, it's pretty special, you know? Yeah. Are there any other examples where Slipknot have kind of made their way into some form of culture or society that you just did not see coming and had no control over? I mean, it's kind of cool, man. I see little stuff kind of all over the place, man. One of the cooler ones was, uh, you know, the movie Little Nicky? There's this great shot of his bedroom in hell. And there's like two or three Slipknot posters up in it, which I thought was so rad. I was just like, oh shit, look at that. We've been mentioned in passing in shows like Californication. Um, we've been incorporated into TV shows like uh, we've been referenced on Metalocalypse and uh, the other one that had like to do with the jail. Um, we've been hinted at in comic books and stuff like just little things like that. It just stuff that you just never would have thought of, man. You know, I mean, we were name dropped in ab an ab fab for Christ's sakes, you know, right when we first came out, like they were rocking out to us. And I, and I watched that show and I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Really? And I mean, I was just like so tickled by that. It really kind of shows you that not only is it the music that kind of gets by, but it's also the visual, the art, the meaning, the everything. You know, we just it felt like we just really captured something in the moment. And I'm really I'm really proud of that. The album is titled The End So Far, which I think caused a bit of panic among some of the fans thinking, this was going to be the end of the band. And I think maybe you had a bit of fun leaving it open-ended, uh, perhaps. Obviously, we've now established that that is not the case. It's, it's more coming to the end of a, an album deal with Roadrunner Records. And if this is the end of one chapter, what is exciting you the most about the future of Slipknot? I never thought that we would be 23 years after the first album came out getting bigger than we've ever been still climbing and really not peaking yet. I never thought that in a million years. So for me, the best part is the fact that there's still territory to go down now that we don't have the label and we we're we're going to be, you know, kind of almost free agents in a weird way there's the potential to go somewhere else and and really be able to explore different you know deals with other labels we can do this on our own we can you know we can kind of do what what Metallica and Motley Crue did and, and just kind of start our own label and, and really kind of do whatever and try to you know take possession of the things that we do have control over you know if we wanted to we could go in and just record 
a crazy hardcore punk thrash gross metal album live in a studio and put it out there or we could do something complex like create a movie and and do a, a double concept we could do anything we want to because the sky's the limit and because we've figured out how to do it on our own terms it means that we can do it anytime we want there's no pressure there's no bullshit we can take you know charge of our destiny and and I think it's because we worked our asses off to get where we are that we realize that we can enjoy this again with no pressure and be able to do something really beautiful and something that really touches people even so many years after our first album. That was Corey Taylor talking to The Fader's David Renshaw. Slipknot's new album, The End So Far, is out tomorrow, September 30 by a Roadrunner Records. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're now on the new live radio app, Amp. You can download it from the App Store now. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.